Hi, this is Peter Case. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From media, music has become a just-in-time economy. From music business worldwide, super fans and supine fans, the music industry is getting its priorities the wrong way around. And from Billboard, UMG sues AI company for using songs to train models. Systemic and widespread infringement. Mm-hmm. Well, Jay, ha- have we talked about AI once or twice before? I it's not going maybe away. Maybe we have. It's not going away. Well, we're going to get you all caught up on these stories. Jay and I are here. It's episode 167. We are glad you're here, and we're hitting the record button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, I love that song. I do, that too. takes me back. One of my yeah, all-time tragic, favorites. Tragic, 
tragic loss this week. Dwight Twilley, if you're a fan of... Gosh, what would you? I mean, it's rock music, but it was kind of the precursors to whatever would eventually became new wave. But it's yeah. just super melodic and poppy music. And, yeah, uh, it's so sad. Yeah, his drummer Phil Seymour um, had some really great pop records out as well. And um, Dwight was close with Tom Petty, and they had done recording together. And if you like Tom Petty, you'll like Dwight Twilley. But yeah, um, sad loss of uh, Dwight Twilley this week. Another one, uh, another great artist gone yeah. from gone from us, and yeah. uh, really sad, really really sad. But yeah. uh, you know, we move on. And Jay, we you and I have been talking. We had a, a, a fun, as we always do. We had a great conversation <laughs> before we ever looked to, to hit the record button, and uh, we've yeah. got a lot of stuff to talk about. It was a wonderful week in the newsletter. So many great stories, oh, uh, as always. And if you're a listener and you're not subscribing to the newsletter, we'll what's the matter with you? Go over and subscribe. I think most are, but it's such a fantastic resource and it is the rabbit hole. Boy, you just start looking at it and suddenly you're, oh, that's an hour gone, but it's important and it's wonderful to have everything in one place. And I know yeah. you work hard to make that happen, brother. So it was a work. an embarrassment of riches and it usually is um, because there's so much going on and and you and I were talking before we hit record about you know the sparks were flying this week because there was this story uh, from Billboard, it was Chris Eggertson mm-hmm. who wrote it, really great piece. The headline was, Luminate will incorporate direct physical sales data from indie retailers starting in 2024. So basically what the story said was that Luminate is moving away from its current quote-unquote modeled methodology, You know, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, where they calculate indie physical sales and they're moving to a direct representation, they say, of what those reported sales are from indie retailers. The indie coalitions, on the other hand, they've released a statement claiming that this will result in a basic collapse of indie sales figures because only 5% of indie stores today, that's 72 out of 1,400, only 5% of indie stores actually report sales directly to Luminate. Right. So they sent out a uh, like a press release and it says in communications with various industry groups, the data analytics company Luminate has announced a dramatic change in the method used to calculate physical sales from independent retailers set to go into effect essentially the last day of this year for the first uh, reporting in uh, January of 2024. The details disclosed lead us to expect charts and data that show an abrupt inaccurate and misleading physical market collapse immediately in Q1 2024. Yeah, you know, they they mentioned that modeled methodology, and I think that relates to what they call waiting, you know, like Mm -hmm. wait, uh, waiting certain retailers so they can extrapolate the number um, because not all of them you know, have the manpower. Uh, these are a lot of these are mom and pop indie retailers, and they don't necessarily report every week, every you know their charts. And so they take some and they weight them, meaning giving them more value to sort of uh, extrapolate and get that number of what all of it should be. And Luminate is saying, well, we're going to go to actual reports from these indie retailers, even though there's only 72 of 1,400. And the indie coalitions are saying, well, wait a second, those numbers are just going to drop right off the planet and it's going to be an mm-hmm. unfair representation. And I don't know enough about this yet, um, but I, I would think that there could be some way to bridge that gap so it's not just falling right off the cliff. 
some sort of a runway to kind of get to get to where they want to be at the end, but not you know abruptly doing it. Well, and this harks back, harkens back to uh, was it ninety one or ninety two for ninety one for the switch ninety one yeah of sound scan, and you know every everybody's arms were up in the air flailing when that happened, and it was it was was somewhat painful but you know the end result was incredibly positive you were right. there and talk a little bit about though how it used to be we've mentioned this a few times on this show but you, know, you were a billboard reporter yourself mm-hmm. and before SoundScan, pre-1991 this is exactly what they did that's right they would call your store um, once a week and you would have your album chart and your singles chart and you would basically read it over the phone to them so and then later you know we would fax it into somebody but they would have reps from the labels calling the store saying hey we really need this song in our top 25 this week and next week we're going for top 10s or whatever it was so there were some retailers that would play that game uh, i worked at tower records at the time and uh we didn't do that. We reported exactly uh, what sold. So then when there was a changeover, it wasn't such a shock uh, for us, um, but it did change the uh, industry quite a bit. Well, and as you've mentioned a few times before, what was surprising, not to many in the industry, but to a lot of people, uh, was that it, it once it once that changeover happened, it was it was dramatic difference in terms of what things were selling, what things weren't selling, and yeah. the rise of of the popularity across the country of country and mm-hmm. other things. It was dramatic the changes that we saw when yeah. when suddenly you're actually truly counting all the records across across the, yeah. the counter there. And uh, yeah, countries. It'll a good be interesting example. to see. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, I see both sides very clearly. I mean, I, I, I tip my hat to Luminate. They want to make this a much more accurate chart. And yet it is a lot of work to get to that end game of where everybody is reporting. So Yeah, we'll stay on top we'll, of this. Uh, more to come. Again, I don't know enough about it yet uh, to form an opinion either way. It just seems pretty shocking. And there were a lot of sparks flying this week. Um, before we jump into the stories, you and I, before we hit record, we were talking about the fact that there were three stories about Taylor Swift in your morning coffee this week. Um, but one of them really made us, uh, sort of laugh a little bit. And it it just, these Swifties, these fans are so innovative. And the, the headline, it was from the New York times. The headline was want to see the eras tour Swifties say, grab your passport and my hand. Um, fans are buying up seats for Taylor Swift's international concerts from the U S often finding that tickets, airfare and lodging combined cost less than just the tickets in the United States. Crazy. It's from Jessica Shaw. She wrote this article and it starts by saying, even with traffic on the 405, it probably would have taken at most three hours for a woman named Victoria Uzitas to drive from her home in San Diego to SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles to see a performance of Taylor Swift's Eras Tour. But instead... She and her teenage daughter crossed the border to Tijuana, flew to Mexico City, enjoyed classic tacos, (laughs) al pastor, and churros, Mm. saw a Frida Kahlo masterpiece at the art museum, the modern art museum down there, and yes, saw Taylor Swift. Tickets in Los Angeles were $1,900 each, Ms. Uzita said, of the marked up prices. That's more than we spent on our flights, our hotel. And all our food, our, our entire trip was less than $1,900. Wow. So wow. they got this really nice little mini vacation in Mexico. 
and actually saved money. It was less expensive than going to the Los Angeles show. That's crazy. Miss Uzitas is not the only Swifty turning to a concert by her favorite artist into an international getaway. Mexico is certainly not alone in reaping the economic benefits either. According to the U.S. Travel Association, the likely economic impact of the 20 domestic stops in Taylor Swift's tour has already exceeded, ready for this, $10 billion with a B. In Los Angeles alone, Taylor Swift's six nights of concerts added 3,300 jobs and earned the city $29 million in sales and hotel room taxes, according to U.S. Travel. It goes, she goes on to say, now with the tour, which began in March and concludes in November of next year, going on to 26 international destinations, the overseas tourism market is cashing in. Hotel prices across Europe are surging on the nights Miss Swift comes to town. Contiki, which is a youth-focused travel agency, is offering five different trips that nod to the singer, including a tour of Paris for your European love story. The agency also offers a discount of 13%, which is a reference to her own to her self-proclaimed lucky number on any European trip longer than 14 days. Remarkable. Yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. Interesting thing there. Anyway, there's three stories about uh, Taylor Swift uh, this week. So much uh, going on there, but I thought this was super interesting how uh, these uh, Taylor Swift fans, you know, we had talked about it a little bit before of how some of them were, you know, getting jobs at some of the venues, parking cars and concessions and things like that. Uh, they're innovative, uh, if nothing else. Yes, absolutely. And I still, you know, we've talked about this before, but you know, but the 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 six dates she did here in L.A. She did six dates at SoFi, which if you're not if you you don't live in L.A. or you're not listening to us from outside of the U.S., it's a giant American football stadium that I think can seat almost a hundred thousand. So she must have had an unbelievable number of 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 concert goers and it was and it was still impossibly hard to get tickets yeah so what a re- an unbelievably successful tour and yeah. uh it's going to keep on going and we will keep talking about it yep. so uh jay before we get going on the rest of our stories we got to reach out and thank our sponsors we are very lucky to have folks that help us put the show together every week yeah and as we say every week these are actually things that we use and and love uh your morning coffee podcast is brought to you Um, by our friends over at Bandzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform. It makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features that you need for a professional website, everything's built right in, hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to help you sell your music and your merch commission-free, that's key, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, Morning Coffee, and that will get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And big thanks to our newest sponsor, Miko. That's spelled M-I-C-C-O. Discover Miko, your ultimate music companion. 
Enjoy weekly Zoom sessions and professional assistance with music bios, press releases, and pitches across comprehensive, I'm sorry, access comprehensive databases, connecting you with key industry influencers at Spotify, TikTok, music blogs, radio, and more. Uh, Stay ahead of the game with regular industry updates, receive immediate support via WhatsApp, and thrive within our vibrant community of passionate musicians. Go to www.themico.com, that's T-H-E. E-M-I-C-C-O for more information. Yeah, and uh, we're brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by our friend and uh, HypeBot founder, uh, Bruce Houghton, with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform, Bands in Town. Bands in Town. Over 80 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yeah, and we'd like to thank the Music Business Association. They host an annual slate of in-person and virtual uh, events. So industry professionals across the globe can come together to discuss hot button issues and support the growth of the entire music business community. Join us uh, for the Music Biz 2024 uh, conference, May 13th through the 16th at the JW Marriott in Nashville. Indeed. So big thanks to Banzoogle, Miko, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. We could not do without you, without you all. We really appreciate it. And of course, every week I get to hang out with the devilishly handsome Jay Gilbert. He is a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. <laughs> I am adorable. I'll give you that. Um, and my adorable co-host, my Mike Etchard is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Group. But just to be clear, adorable is several levels below devilish, devilishly handsome. I just want to think everybody should know that. Yeah, so thank you for that. There you go. You, yeah. you, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Go well, Jay, I say we jump into our sh- our stories. The first one is from Midia. Music has become a just-in-time economy. Yeah, super interesting. I love this piece uh, by Mark Mulligan. And you and I are huge media fans. And we talk about Mark and Chris and uh, Tatiana and um, Keith and all those people over there. We we love media. It's just one of the best resources, not only for music news, music industry news, but they have some amazing reports, um, just world-class stuff. So Mark, Mark kicks it off by saying that the modern day economy is built upon just in time supply chains. This framework has enabled the benefits of consumerism that we have, uh, that we've come to enjoy, such as next day delivery, out of season foods on our shelves, and the digital devices we live our lives through. Each component of the just-in-time economy works tightly coordinated partnership from factories through transport, uh, point of sale. The underlying principle is that every component is manufactured and delivered at just the right time to ensure there's a continual throughput of production, assembly, and consumption. Gone are the old days of large warehouses containing product just in case we needed them. 
Instead, just the right amount makes its way around the world in shipping containers to meet demand. Most of us never knew this system existed until the pandemic. Then it suddenly broke down and we found ourselves short of essentials like toilet paper. Perhaps without even realizing it, the music business has become a just-in-time economy too. And that is not a good thing. No, he says the music business used to be characterized by artists disappearing into the studio for months on end and emerging with an album for expectant fans to get their hands on at some time in the future. Bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers were able to average four years between their albums and still expect their fan base to be there, waiting eagerly for the next release. Streaming and social media combined to turn that model on its head heralding the era of always on of the always on artist. Now, artists fear the consequences of not putting out a single every month. Heck, even Daniel X said it said it is not enough for artists to release albums every 3 to 4 years and that they need to create continuous engagement with their fans. One of the reasons Ugh. I like this piece so much is we don't talk about this enough publicly. There's not enough written about it. But I can tell you that when we talk to artists and managers and songwriters, there is a lot of pressure uh, to perform in this always on music industry. Um, yeah. You have to release focus tracks and you have to have assets surrounding those like short form video and banner sets and a narrative and just it's a lot of work and it's. It's so much to do when you're trying to write, record, tour at a high level. Um, I, I thought that was really interesting when he pointed out that the Red Hot Chili Peppers were able to average four years between their albums. That wouldn't happen. That couldn't happen today. I mean, I know a lot of artists, they don't even want to wait. Uh, they want to keep a steady stream of every you know six weeks or so of tracks mm -hmm. coming and then compiling those into EPs and albums. And it's that always-on music industry that you alluded to. Stress. He says, add to this the very real fear that the algorithm will forget artists if they do not keep up a steady flow of social posts and releases, and you have the foundation stones for music's just-in-time economy. The implication, no, the reality is that artists do not conform to the always-on model if, if, I'm sorry, if, <laughs> the implication, no, the reality is that if artists do not conform to the always-on model, then they will be lost by or not in the system. Mm. Artists and their rights holders have become just-in-time suppliers with the subtle yet seismic shift from delivering art to their fans when they have the finished, when they have finished their creative process at their pace to filling in a slot in the never-ceasing supply chain. It is an environment that, unsurprisingly, has created the hit-today-gone-tomorrow world that today's music business operates wow. in. Wow, hit-today-gone-tomorrow. Mm -hmm. and, and he goes on to say that the model works well for platforms and consumers, but not so much for artists due to the misaligned incentives across the industry. The underlying problem with the system is that the content platforms that shape today's entertainment business, things like TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, Spotify, et cetera, they value creation more than they value creators. The more creation that there is, the more that the platform's algorithms are able to target users with even more specific and personalized content. The platforms all, of course, 
talk about talk a good about you know creators and what matters most to them is that their users get the right content. That's their goal, right? It doesn't matter whether that means a thousand creators delivering one piece of content to a thousand users or one creator to 1,000 users. With the pervasive obsession with new, as soon as one piece of content has been served, another is needed. Yeah, he says, this is how we described this dynamic back in early 2021. In the attention economy's volume and velocity game, the streaming platform is a hungry beast that is perpetually hungry. Each new song is just another bit of caloric input to satiate its appetite. And it's not just the consumer platforms that fuel this fire. Artist distribution platforms play a role too. The unspoken promise of the platforms is that artists have a chance to compete with the likes of Taylor Swift. Of course, 99.99% of the nearly 6.5 million self-releasing artists will never get into the same race, let alone win it. We are at a point where there needs to be a duty of care to creators from both distributors and platforms. This starts with selling the right dream. Some artists may only ever have a thousand fans or fewer who want to listen to their music. That should be embraced as an aspirational goal, not failure. Service offerings should be geared around helping creators understand what their realistic but aspirational goals should be and helping them achieve them. Not a nudge and a wink implication that they can all become superstars. Yeah, great piece by Mark Mulligan. Enough said. Um, yes. Uh, always look forward to anything he writes. And this is just spot on. And like I said, it just doesn't get talked about enough. This, this always on music industry. And yes, there are different rules for the superstars. Right. But if you're a developing mm-hmm. artist, middle class artist, you sort of have to play that always on game uh, in order for your fans to stay engaged. But like we mentioned before, there are mental health implications with that. That's a lot to pile on to uh, to one person. And uh, we'll see how it evolves. But it, it can be very unhealthy. Yeah. So this next story, Jay, from Music Business Worldwide, because we talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about super fans. Yeah. And this this article is uh, super fans and supine fans. The music industry is getting its priorities the wrong way around. Yeah. And of course, that's a British publication. So they they their their twist of words is a little different than ours. But interesting story here, as you know, uh, the, the the theory that maybe we kind of got that super fan thing wrong. So we, yeah, and this was written in. by. Uh, Eamon Ford, um, who mm-hmm. uh, I've spoken to, a really sharp guy. He wrote a really great book uh, that I read called Leaving the Building, uh, The Lucrative yes. Afterlife of Music Estates. And it's it's such a great book. And it came out at a time when there was just this gold rush of these companies like Hypnosis, KKR, BMG, Primary Wave, like everybody was buying up all these catalogs. And he really mm-hmm. dug into sort of the ecosystem behind not just catalogs, but estates and some of that. So uh, I'm a big fan of Eamon Ford, who uh, wrote this piece for Music Business Worldwide. Yeah, so he starts with, with the kind of zeal that is characteristic of the recently converted, 
The music, indus- music industry is currently falling over itself to prove it is all about the superfans. Warner Music and Sony recently stepped forward as investors in AI-driven superfan platform Fave. The Financial Times wrote in July about how targeting superfans was changing the economic DNA of the entire music business, hooking it to blockbusting tours by Taylor Swift, Beyonce, and others. And the Universal Music Group has claimed that research into music streaming subscribers found about 30% are superfans of one or more of our artists. Right, and we talked about the Goldman Sachs uh, Music in the Air report a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said that slightly less uh, generous about Universal, but it still said that 20% of music streaming subscribers could be seen as superfans you know, at the upper end, that represents $4.2 billion uh, in the total addressable market that uh, Eamon is saying that is currently untapped. Sure. And he said a Illuminate study also recently claimed that 15% of the general population can be described as superfans, defining them as people who engage with artists and their content in five or more than five different ways. I'm a super Here fan. A super, you know? Yeah, we we're super fans in many artists. He says, here a super fan, there a super fan, everywhere a super fan. Like Pokemon with a surfeit of disposable income, you gotta catch them all. But he says, rather than viewing fans as cuddly Pokemon characters, maybe a better analogy, this one from Aesop, rather than from Satoshi Tahiri, is that the goose that keeps on laying the golden egg, except the music industry not only wants to collect the golden eggs, it also wants to force feed these geese to make full gras on the side. I, I like the way he writes this, you know, that uh, here a super fan, there a super fan. He also goes on to say, Fans, ordinary fans, normal fans, who cares about those fair weather guys, those weekend golfers? What, what use are they? Uh, unless they're super, the music industry is not that fussed about them at the minute. But no industry should be prioritizing super fans at the expense of every other tier of fan. It also starts to become an unhealthy relationship if they keep returning to the same people with more products at a higher price each time, expecting them to immediately buy everything pushed at them. And I think that's one of the key points that he describes in this article. Yeah, he says in the mid-1980s, the advertising slogan for a a bank in in the UK was the bank that likes to say yes. It was designed to make a major banking organization appear, appear altruistic. Good luck with that. And most decidedly on the side of the customer. Here's a spoiler alert. It was none of those things. That model seems to have been inverted in this age of the superfan. Altruism is an, is an anthem here. For some of the most mercenary labels, artists, promoters, and management companies, they are only enthused when financial lassoing of the fans that only say yes. Yeah, we see yes this to a buying, lot. We, we see, oh, yeah. We, we see this a lot with you know, all the uh, color variants that he talks about and all the different merch. And there's certain bands that uh, I subscribe to their newsletters. And I'm constantly getting emails with all the new merch that they have and all the different color uh, vinyl variants and cassettes and all these things. And and I like that he's alluding to this because I hadn't really thought about this much before, but some of it can be a little tiring. Yes. He says superfans are inherently a minority in terms of actual size, but not in terms of spending per capita. 
But but what about the much more casual listeners to music? They are still fans, just with less demonstrative intensity and less willingness to spring for the priciest items. Plus, let's not forget this, there are lots of them. The industry needs to think think of a new hierarchy in terms of both consumption and willingness to spend across all categories, including live, recorded, merchandise, and more. In the, period, in the pyramid of fandom, there is the super fan at the very top, the supplementary fans in the middle, and then what we can see as the supine fans at the bottom. The supine fans, Jay. That's the people that are lying down. So he goes on to say that if you're doing a regular shakedown of your most loyal customers, eventually you'll bankrupt them either financially or in terms of their patience, but probably both. And I think that's key. They, they yeah. paid yesterday. They pay today. They'll pay tomorrow. They might even pay the day after tomorrow, but they won't pay forever. Just how far are you going to push them? Just how tightly are you going to squeeze them? And I think that is a, a very important point. Yeah, he says there is some pushback happening, such as Blackpink fans publicly arguing that YG Entertainment is more interested in selling new merchandise lines for the act rather than have them create new music. But these moments tend to be the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, it feels like we're very much reaching a peak super fan, and we'll just leave it with that. However, you know, what mountaineers will tell you, when you reach the peak of any of the world's highest mountains, it becomes almost impossible to breathe the air as it gets a lot thinner. It's incredibly lonely up there, and the only exposure you encounter is the kind that will freeze you to death. I like the wordplay, Eamon. I love the article. I think there are some bands out there, and I think we could probably point a finger at a few of them, who are maybe going a little bit over the top when it comes to pushing their fans to Mm -hmm. buy this, buy my album, see my show, buy this new merch, buy this experience, do this thing. And it can be a little bit tiring. Yeah. And I think, you know, as an industry, we... We, we tend to pile on when, when one thing seems like a good thing, we keep doing it until it's yes. suddenly we overdo it. So yeah. uh, guilty as charged uh, occasionally. So yes. uh, great article by him and a, an interesting way of looking at that. And again, we, you know, we, we do fall in love with certain trends and then kind of forget other things. So good point and, yeah. and interesting points made. Uh, our next story, Jay, this is also very interesting. From Billboard, UMG sues AI company for using songs to train models. Yeah. Systemic and widespread infringement, they say. Yeah, this was written by Bill Donahue over at uh, Billboard. A fantastic piece, but it really got you and I talking about this because we're we're getting a little bit of conflicting information. Um, there was a story in your morning coffee this week, um, and the, it was from Variety, and it said the, the headline was, what would it take for an AI-generated song to qualify for a Grammy? And I thought that was really interesting, but here's a quote I pulled out of it. It said, a voice itself is not copyrightable, top intellectual property attorney Robert Clarita says, but you're using a recording to train the AI and that's where the copyright infringement could come in. And I think that's what they're talking about in this Mm -hmm. story. Yes, exactly. It starts by saying the lawsuit is the first major case aimed squarely at whether artificial intelligence platforms can be trained on copyrighted music. 
Yeah, that's that's super interesting because last week we we had this story uh, by Glenn Peoples at Billboard where he interviewed Donald Passman, and I'm going to pull out a quote from from that. Uh, Donald Passman said, "There there's no copyright in AI, so if you use it to create something, it may be that anything you create, anybody else can use for free." And you can't necessarily get paid for it. So I think AI has a place in helping artists and helping enhance materials and so forth. But the law gets a little tricky because you can only get a copyright on what's created by a human. um, And that's pretty well settled. And also the part created by the AI doesn't have a copyright. So you don't end up uh, uh, owning 100% of your material. And that's why this piece is a little bit confusing for me because... We're talking about something a little bit different, something you and I talk about frequently, and that is when you use machine learning or artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. to train a model based on a body of work, and then you generate work from it. And yes. we're gonna we're gonna need to call one of our music industry lawyers to come on and and walk us through you know this this subtly the, nuanced thing. Yeah, the nuances. Well, this article starts by saying Universal Music Group and other music companies are suing an artificial intelligence platform called Anthropic PBC for using copyrighted song lyrics to train its software, marking the first major lawsuit and was expected to be a key legal battle over the future of AI music. Yeah, and what people need to understand with ChatGPT or any type of artificial intelligence, AI, machine learning, whatever you want to call it, is it can't make something up out of thin air. It has to go out and, you know, with chat GPT looks at billions, if not trillions of data points to, to learn from. So when you see something that's generating music, it's, it's drawing from some body of work. Yes. Well, in a complaint filed Wednesday morning this last week in a Nashville federal court, lawyers for UMG, Concord Music, Abco, and other music publishers accused Anthropic of violating the company's copyrights en masse by using vast numbers of songs to help its AI models learn how to spit out new lyrics. I ah, see. There it is. In the process of building and operating AI models, Anthropic unlawfully copies and disseminates vast amounts of copyright works, lawyers for music companies wrote. Publishers embrace innovation and recognize the great promise of AI when it's used ethically and responsibly, but Anthropic violates these principles on a systemic and widespread basis. Right. Now, Anthropic did not immediately return a request for comment, but the new lawsuit is similar to cases filed by visual artists over the unauthorized use of their works to train AI image generators, as well as cases filed by authors like Game of Thrones writer George R.R. R. Martin and novelist John Grisham over the use of their books. But it's the, but this is the first to squarely target music. Yeah, I've been reading about this a lot, where artists are seeing portions of their work come up, whether it's in photography or yes. painting or sketching yes. and some of these things. And I agree with these people that if you're drawing from my body of work, I should participate financially in that. But a, ahead of all of that, there needs to be sort of a roadmap and sort of some guideposts and some rules and regulations surrounding this, right? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. So in the lawsuit, it said that Anthropic profits richly from the vast troves, troves 
of copyrighted material that Anthropic scrapes from the internet. Unlike songwriters who are created by nature, Anthropic's AI models are not creative. Like you were saying, Jay, they depend entirely on the creativity of others, lawyers for the publishers wrote. Yet Anthropic pays nothing to publishers, their songwriters, or the countless other copyright owners whose copyrighted works Anthropic uses to train its AI models. That's that's important. That's really important. Let me just jump in really quickly that, you know, the music industry is uh, complex. You know, you've got the master side and you've got the publishing side. And I think what you're Mm -hmm. talking about here is that Anthropic is really depriving publishers and their songwriters, you know, the revenue that they deserve for their work. Right. And then they also go on to talk about uh, fair use, the fair use doctrine. And uh, it's, you know, as we know, historically, fair use uh, has enabled critics to quote from the works they were dissecting or parodists to use existing materials to mock them. But more recently, it's also empowered new technologies. In 84, 1984, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the VCR was protected by fair use. In 2007, a federal appeals court ruled that the Google image search was fair use. But in this case, in when you, uh, UMG and other publishers seemed intent on heading off any kind of fair use. Uh, yeah. And and that's that's really important. They argued that Anthropic's behavior would harm the market for licensing lyrics to AI services that actually pay for licenses, a key consideration in any fair use uh, uh, example. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. You know, there was this a hearing. going to be complex. There was a hearing that they had back in May. And uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, she was grilling the CEO uh, behind ChatGPT about how he and others plan to compensate the artist. And I'll leave you with this. Um, She said, if I can go in and say, write a song that sounds like Garth Brooks, and it takes part of an existing song, there has to be compensation to that artist for using that, uh, for that use, she said. If it was radio play, it would be there. If it was streaming, it would be there. So it's going to be really interesting. This is all brand new. You know, um, it's been around like a day and a half. Uh, this whole AI thing is really evolving and changing. It's so dynamic and we've been trying to cover it as best we can. But uh, even from the looks of uh, some of these articles we've been reading, we're still in the wild, wild west uh, early days of trying to figure out uh, how we're going to use AI in music and how songwriters, publishers, um, performers are going to be uh, compensated. Well, and concurrently, it's not only music and not only images, and it's all kinds of written works and things from movies and things like that. So lots of content creators are getting on board with this, and I think this is a quite a shot over the bow, and we'll see where it goes. And on that note, Jay, we got to wrap up the episode. I want to thank everyone for listening in. Jay and I do not take that for granted. We certainly appreciate it. We also want to thank our, thank our sponsors, Banzoogle, Miko, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. Thanks to all. And on that note, thanks for listening to episode 167. Jay and I will be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.